Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Going to be focusing on verses 11 through 18 this morning. And as you're turning there, let's just review where Paul has brought us, starting back chapter 1, verse 1, so we can follow his train of thought. This is so important that we do this in our Bible study. So all the way back, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul introduces himself to the Ephesian believers as the one who's writing this. Paul's an apostle. He writes to the church in Ephesus, which is, was located in what's today called Turkey on the western coast. It was a Roman um, colony there. And so Paul's writing to this church, which was living in a very spiritually difficult place to live, similar to what we are involved with here. And Paul wants to encourage them. So in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul says that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he lists seven of them, which I'll let you read. Powerful, vast, beautiful, glorious spiritual blessings. And then in verses 15 through 23, Paul says, because you have all these spiritual blessings in Christ, therefore I want to pray that you will see and feel even more deeply the certain hope of heaven the riches of your joy in heaven that you'll have in heaven, and the immeasurable power of God which is given to us now to help us fight against sin while we're on the way to heaven. So that's verses 15 through 23. Paul prays that we would see and feel more of what we have in Christ. And that brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As we saw these last couple of weeks, what Paul's concerned about in these verses, is the danger that because we see all the spiritual blessings we have, that we could start to think it's somehow because we're better than other people. Somehow we've earned this from God. We've deserved these spiritual blessings from Jesus. And we could start to become proud and boastful. And so in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul reminds us, you were dead in sin. All of us. By nature, we were children of wrath. God saved us, not for anything in us, but by His mercy alone. He gave us faith. He changed our hearts, not because we were any better than anybody else, but simply by His mercy. He forgave us through Christ. He's caused us to be born again, made us alive, seated us at Christ's right hand in the heavenly places, all this to display His mercy. So we're humbled before God and what He's done by His mercy alone. That's verses 1 through 10. And that brings us to chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. And I think Paul's continuing his theme here of helping us avoid becoming proud or boastful in the wonders of our salvation. And to do that, he reminds us Gentiles. He's reminding us Gentiles. We might have some Jewish people here. I think most of us are Gentiles. Okay, so he's reminding us Gentiles that before we were saved, we were separated from God's people people of Israel and separated from God himself, but that Jesus Christ has saved us, has reconciled us to God by his work, and in so doing has also reconciled us to believing Jews, making us the church. And this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, displays additional facets of the glory of Jesus Christ in bringing us to salvation. So let's dig in. And to to go deeper into this, let's start with this question. What problem did we Gentiles face? And Paul tells us in verses 11 and 12, look at what he says. Therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that means you who were born Gentiles by your race, by your heredity, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So the Jewish people, all the men were circumcised. That was one of the marks of being God's people in the Old Testament. Gentiles, generally speaking, were not circumcised. And so the Jews were mocking the Gentiles by saying, you uncircumcised people. That's what was going on here. So you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jewish people, circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, let me give you some Old Testament background so you see what's going on here. In the Old Testament, we read that God chose the nation of Israel to be His people. And he, His purpose was that they would trust Him, that they would obey Him, that He would pour His favor and blessings out upon them. And so by God pouring His favor out upon them, all the peoples would see how great God is how loving God is, how glorious God is. God chose Israel to display His glory among the nations. And God gave Israel His good law, which taught them to live by faith, justified by faith alone in God's mercy, which would be purchased by the Messiah, and also gave them laws which would make them distinct culturally from the other nations, like circumcision, don't eat any pork, uh, certain uh, ways to, to cut or not cut their hair, clothes they should or shouldn't wear. So God gave them cultural commands which would set them distinct from the nations so that the nations could see this distinct people, see God's favor and mercy upon them and say, God is glorious, we want to learn more. That was God's purpose. So what happened? The vast majority of Israel rebelled against God, sinned against God. Now, there was always a remnant of believers all through the Old Testament, but the vast majority of Israel turned their backs on God and sinned against Him in, in one of two different ways. Some of them blatantly just turned their backs on God's Word and started worshiping idols like Baal, like King Ahab. Remember the story of Ahab and Elijah on top of Mount Carmel, remember the, the offerings and the, the water and the fire from heaven, remember the whole story? But Ahab was a Jewish man worshiping Baal. So some Jewish people blatantly turned their backs on God's law and worshiped idols. But over time, more and more of the people sinned against God in a more subtle and deceiving way where they took God's word and distorted it didn't turn their backs on it. They twisted it and distorted it and made it into a system of works in which they could boast and see themselves as being better than the Gentiles. And they even added to it additional requirements that when they fulfilled, they could even be better than the Gentiles. And so that's what happened in the nation of Israel. Think of it like this. It's like God's 
law, God's Old Testament word, was like a shipment of steel girders. You all know what steel girders are, what you build, build things with? It's like it was a shipment of steel girders, and God's intention in giving them these girders was that they would build a skyscraper that would show all the world God's greatness and God's glory, so the world would flock to hear about who God is and come to trust Him and be forgiven and saved. But Israel took these steel girders, which God wanted to be a skyscraper, showing the world who He was, And instead of using it to build a skyscraper, they took these steel girders and they built a fence around themselves. A big wall, a dividing wall. Because they're better than all the Gentiles. They're above all the Gentiles. They're going to be separate from the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were distanced from them. They were put off from them. They shunned the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles, instead of being drawn to God as they saw his glory in Christ, they were separated from the people who God had said in Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all the peoples. Israel, for the most part, did not do that. So there was terrible division and hostility between the Gentiles and the Jewish people. Now here's some New Testament examples. Look at John chapter 4, verse 9. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Remember the story? The woman at the well? Look at what she says to him. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds this explanation, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, the Old Testament never said that Jews shouldn't have dealings with Samaritans. That was one of these additional laws that they had added to make this wall of hostility because Jews were better than the Samaritans. Now, now, by the way, this does not mean that Jews, because they had this pride and aloofness, are like worse sinners than the rest of us. Are we clear on that point? Okay, Jews were terrible sinners. Gentiles were terrible sinners. Okay, For all have sinned, Jews and Gentiles, and have fallen short of the glory of God. So we're talking about ways the Jewish people sinned, but it doesn't leave us off the hook. Okay, Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 if you need to be reminded about that, church, okay? Are we clear? Very important. So equally sinful, Gentiles and Jews. But again, this is what the Jewish people did. Look at John 18, 28. This is after the Jewish leaders had arrested Jesus. And they wanted him to be questioned by the Roman governor. And so they took Jesus to the Roman governor's headquarters. But look at what happens next. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves, the Jewish religious leaders, did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The Old Testament never said, if you go into a Gentile's headquarters, you're going to get defiled. This is one of these laws that they created themselves. I mean, imagine how offensive that would be if somebody walked up to you and said, I'd love to come to your home, but if I walked into your house, I'd be defiled. That would be offensive, right? And so just think of the the animosity, the hostility, the division that existed between Jews and and Gentiles. Now, that's what's going on. And so let's look back at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. That's what Paul is alluding to here, talking about what name the Jews called the Gentiles. Ephesians 2, verse 11, let's read that again. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands. Okay, so Jewish people regularly mocked Gentiles. The uncircumcision. Look at the uncircumcision. What have the uncircumcision done this last week? So there was terrible division, animosity. Jews and Gentiles did not speak to each other. Jews and Gentiles did not go into each other's homes. Jews and Gentiles were hostile, had animosity towards each other. There was a wall of hostility separating the Jewish people from the Gentiles. So that's the background to what Paul's talking about in this passage. Now, why was this such a problem? Paul tells us in verse 12. He lists four ways this was a huge problem. First, he says, because we were, we Gentiles, we were separated from Christ. Verse 12, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ. So we were separated from Christ. We were dead in our sin. We were separated from the Messiah. But there was another way we were separated from Christ also. And that's because we were separated from the people of Israel who had the good news of the Messiah. Here's the good news of the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. Prophecies about the Messiah, how God will forgive sins through all who trust his mercy because of what the Messiah would do. But the good news of the Messiah was behind this wall of hostility. We were separated from it, and so we were doubly separated from Christ. Separated by our sin and separated because of this wall of hostility between us and the Jewish people. Second problem. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's right there in verse 12. See that? Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Think about the Samaritan woman. So because of pride and hostility among the Israelite people, she was alienated from them. No Jewish person would talk to a Samaritan person. If Jewish people were going to travel from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north, they would go way out of their way to avoid Samaria. So they wouldn't be defiled. So no, no connection, no communication. Which means that the woman at the well would never hear the good news of Jesus the Messiah. Except for one thing. Jesus went to her. Don't you love that? And so I said, why are you talking to a Samaritan, sir? She was stunned. And he told her the good news. And she was saved that day. But again, understand the problem. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, verse 12, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. So the Old Testament was full of God's promises. Again, that through the Messiah, God would forgive our sins. God is slow to anger, abounding in forgiveness and loving kindness. The verse that Tyler mentioned earlier this morning from Psalm 1611, God is our fullness of joy forever. He is our all-satisfying treasure that God would look after us and guide us and provide for us and love us and comfort us and protect us. So the Old Testament was full of God's promises, the covenants of God's promises. But Israel is the people who had the Old Testament. And we were separated from Israel because of this barrier of hostility and animosity between us and them. So we knew nothing about the covenants of promise because of Israel's pride and our sin too. Fourth, because of all this, we had no hope 
and were without God in the world. Heartbreaking words into verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. So can you feel the heartbreak of this? This is where we were. Paul wants us to see where we were lest we start to boast in the salvation we've received. We were dead in sin, facing God's wrath forever, cut off from Christ by our own sinfulness, and we were distanced from the good news of how God would save us. We were separated from the good news of God's word, which is what the Jewish people had, and they had it behind their wall of, of hostility. Try to think of an illustration to, to bring this home and see if this helps you. It's like we all have a disease called sin, which is slowly killing us. Okay, we've all got it. It's like, <coughs> and so we're, we're struggling, but we're not dead yet. And we've got it. The Jewish people have it. We've all got this disease of sin. But, but God gave the antibiotic to the people of Israel so that they would, they would take the pill, get healthy, and show all the peoples there's healing. Come, we got plenty of the antibiotic to go around. Come and get healed. That was God's intention. But what did Israel do? Remember, Israel is no more sinful than we are, but here's, this is what Israel did. Instead of taking the antibiotic, they just boasted that they had the antibiotic. God gave us the antibiotic. We've got it. You don't. We're better than you are. Let's build a wall around us because we're so much better than those other people. We are the antibiotic people. Right? God gave it to us because we're special. And meanwhile, they're still dying of sin, and all the Gentiles are dying from sin. Do you see how that works? That's what happened. This massive division, wall of hostility and separation. But what did Jesus do? So here Paul is, from another angle, wanting to just highlight the wonder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So what did Jesus do. Verses 13 through 18. Let's read through these verses, and I want to show you seven things that Jesus did. Verse 13, but now, that's where you were, Gentiles, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, Gentiles and Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There are seven descriptions that Paul gives here, seven, of what Jesus did. First, he brought us near by his blood, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
We were far off, separated from God because of our sin, facing God's punishment forever. That was our doom. That was our destiny. But because of Jesus, God brought us near. He brought his power upon us. He changed our hearts, not for any reason in us, but just to display his mercy. He gave us faith. And as we put our trust in Jesus, because of Jesus' death, we were completely forgiven for all of our sins, reconciled to God, born again. All of God's promises are true for us. We're no longer far away. God brings us near to himself through Jesus Christ. He brought us near by his blood, verse 13. Second, he became our peace, making us one by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, so picture, here, here's Jews over here, here's Gentiles over here, there's this dividing wall of hostility between them, we were hostile towards each other, but Jesus broke the power of that hostility through the cross. Here's what he did, when he saves us Gentiles, he breaks the power of sin by dying on the cross, paying for its guilt, so he washes us clean from the hostility. He removes the hostility from us so that we have peace. When he saves Jewish people, he does the same thing. He pays for their sins through his death on the cross. He washes them clean from their pride and hostility. He fills them with peace. And so by removing the hostility from believing Gentiles, believing Jews, filling them with peace, Jesus makes believing Jews and Gentiles one, brings us together, unites us together. See, that's why in the New Testament time period, there weren't Jewish Christian churches separated from Gentile Christian churches, kind of each like looking at each other, like scoffing at each other. No, churches had Jews and Gentiles worshiping and loving Jesus together. It was a supernatural miracle brought about by Jesus. Third, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's right there in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, now, this might puzzle you because if you've read the Sermon on the Mount recently, you'll be remembering that Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And yet here, Paul says that Jesus abolished the law of commandments. So how did he do it and how didn't he do it? There's a way, a sense in which he did and a sense in which he did not. So here's what's helped me to think about this. The whole Old Testament is, is pointing towards the coming of the Messiah. The prophecies about the Messiah, the animal sacrifices which pictured what the Messiah would do, circumcision which pictured how the Messiah would cut away sin, uh, sin from our hearts, we'd be born again, and then the, the food laws and the ceremonial laws which dis distinguished the people of Israel so the nations would be able to look at Israel and see who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do so they could see all the truth of the Messiah by coming to, the, to Israel and learning from them. So the whole Old Testament pointed ahead towards the Messiah. Now when the Messiah came, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the Old Testament. And because he fulfilled the Old Testament, parts of the Old Testament were no longer necessary. They were annulled, abolished in that sense. So, for example, the sacrificial laws, the animal sacrifice laws. Well, their whole purpose was to point to what the Messiah would do. But when Jesus came, he did it. He died on the cross. So we don't need to 
to point back to the animal sacrifices to explain how God forgives sins. Oh, no, no, we're missing the whole point if we do that. We point to the cross to show how God forgives sins. And so the animal sacrifices no longer needed. And in that sense, they were abolished. Do you see that? Same with circumcision, which pointed ahead to how Jesus would make the new covenant effective through the cross, by which God would cut sin away from our hearts and cause us to be born again. That's what circumcision pictured. But Jesus does that through the cross by the power of the Spirit. So we don't need a picture anymore. We have the reality. We see it all around us here in our lives. Same with, say, the food laws. So Israel, don't eat any pork, for example, because we want you to be distinguished from the nations so that they can see you're different, learn the truth from you, and come to know God. But see, now with the coming of Christ, we are all to go out to all of the nations. There's no longer one nation that has the responsibility of doing that. All the nations do, so the food laws to distinguish one nation are no longer important. Do you see how that works? So that's the sense in which Jesus abolished the commandments. Now, the fact that Jesus abolished those does not mean that we don't read the, New Test the Old Testament anymore. Some Christians make the mistake of concluding that. That's not what the New Testament says. In, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says that the Old Testament was written on our behalf. It was written for us. The Old Testament was at least as much written for the New Testament church as it was for the Old Testament saints. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and for training, all Scripture includes the Old Testament Scriptures as well as the New Testament Scriptures. So we should be avidly reading the New Testament and the Old Testament. The fact that Jesus has abolished some of the commands does not mean that we don't read the Old Testament anymore. But it does mean that we let Jesus interpret the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that we read the Old Testament in the light of who Jesus is and what he's done. And Jesus himself taught that the food laws are no, no longer important, for example. And so we interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus. But notice, Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And then fourth, by doing this, he created in himself one new man in place of two. That's verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Paul is thinking there were, there were two sinful men, Jewish sinful man, Gentile sinful man, representing the Jewish people and the Gentile people. But when Jesus saves Jews... He so captures them by his glory that all they want is Jesus. All they want is Jesus. And when Jesus saves Gentiles, he so captures us by his glory that all we want is Jesus. All we want is Jesus. And when a, a Jewish believer who only wants Jesus meets a Gentile believer who only wants Jesus, oh, they're going to be buddies, right? They're going to love each other. They're going to be in unity together. No more dividing wall of hostility. You know Jesus. I know Jesus. We love each other. Jesus makes the two into one new man. That's what Paul says. Fifth, he reconciled us both to God in one body by killing the hostility through the cross. Now, notice one thing. It's not just the Gentiles who need to be reconciled. Even though Israel was God's people, they needed to be 
reconciled just as much as we need to be reconciled. Again, because the vast majority of Israelites were sinning against God. They were not born again in the Old Testament. Some were. Hannah was. David was. Abraham was. Sarah was. David was, right? Many were, but, but most were not throughout the Old Testament history. And so we all, Jew and Gentile, need to be reconciled to God. And there's only one way this happens, through the cross. The Jewish people can only be reconciled to God through the cross. The Jewish people need their Messiah. He's their Messiah, and ours by God's grace. But the Jewish people cannot be reconciled to God in any other way apart from Jesus, nor can we. It's only through Jesus. And when we're reconciled to God through Jesus... Jesus' death breaks the power of sin in our hearts, including the hostility that has been there between Jew and Gentile. It was a huge issue back at the time that Paul is writing this letter. So picture a triangle. Up at the top is God. This bottom corner is Jewish people, and this bottom corner is Gentile people. Now, so when God saves a Jewish person, reconciles them through Jesus, brings him to God, and then when God saves a Gentile person, and he becomes saved to God. Notice that although they're, they're divided by this hostility here, when they're both saved, they end up reconciled in God at the top of the triangle. That's what God does when he saves Jews, when he saves Gentiles. Reconciliation always happens. It's a supernatural transformation. It's a miracle, and it happens only through the cross. Sixth, he preached peace to both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. And that's right there with the woman at the well, right? Jesus is preaching the good news to her right there, Samaritan Gentile woman. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who had the demonized daughter who said, how about just a few crumbs off the table, Jesus? He says, I haven't seen this much faith in Israel. This is amazing, right? So here Jesus is preaching peace to those who were far off. Jesus also preached peace to those who were far off through the apostles. Remember the dream that came to Peter? He needed to see it three times. Three times this food's okay to eat, right? Three times. The food's okay to eat. The food's okay to eat. The food's okay to eat. The dream three times, Acts chapter 10. Peter goes and he preaches peace to Cornelius and his household, Gentiles, and they're saved. So Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far off and he preached peace to those who were near. Jesus preached peace to Jewish leaders. He preached peace. Who was the guy who came and talked? Nicodemus, right? He preached peace to Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, right? Jesus preached peace to, to the Jewish people. And then through Paul, whose ministry was to the Gentiles, Peter, whose ministry was to the Jews, Jesus preached peace. Seventh, he gives us both access to the Father by the Spirit. Verse 18, for through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now again, don't ever think that the Jewish people, because they are God's chosen people, that they can have access to God and forgiveness any way other than through Jesus Christ. If you have Jewish friends love them, serve them, care for them, and urge them to put their trust in Jesus, their Messiah, as the only way they can be forgiven. 
But let me also mention that Jewish believers do not have any more access to God than we Gentile believers do. That is, don't, don't think that if you keep the Old Testament food laws, then you have even more access. Yes, you got access through Jesus, but now you've got even more access because you're keeping the Old Testament food laws or because you're following the Old Testament calendar or because you're following the Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you understand that that is irrelevant in terms of access to God? Are we all clear on that? There are Christians who get confused about that. Don't be confused about that. We have access in Jesus through the Spirit to the Father. It's wide open. Couldn't be wider. It's wide open for Gentiles and for Jews. So do you see the miracle that Jesus has brought about here? This is astonishing. We were facing a massive problem, we Gentiles. We were dead in sin. We were by nature children of wrath, facing God's judgment. And the gospel, the answer, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, was possessed by the Israelites, but there was a wall of hostility between us and them, and they weren't going to tell us, and we didn't want to go ask them. So we were facing a huge problem. But through the cross, Jesus saved us Gentiles. Through the cross, Jesus saved the Jews, took away the hostility, washed that clean, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, the hostility is gone, and so believing Jews and Gentiles love each other, abolished the wall of division. And so now the church is not just believing Jews, not just believing Gentiles, but it's one new man, one new creation in Christ Jesus, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, loving each other. It would have been shocking back in New Testament times for somebody who wasn't a believer to walk into a New Testament church and see Jews and Gentiles praying together, holding hands, praying together, embracing each other when they see each other, worshiping Jesus Christ together. It would have been absolutely shocking. It would have been like the, the South in the United States during the height of Jim Crow and segregation and lynchings and horrible things to see a believing white man and a believing black man praying together, loving each other. How does that happen? Jesus. Jesus Christ does that. He did it, and he wants to keep doing it, but that's, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me give you now three, three implications. I was just praying over this passage, saying, okay, Lord, what, what does this mean for Grace Church? This is God's word. It's important that we understand these truths. Why? And I, and I thought of three three implications, three takeaways for us. And the first is, I think God wants us to just see a, a new dimension of the beautiful work of salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished. Again, think about A.D., 80, A.D., 90, 90 years after Jesus' birth. Think about a New Testament church and Jews and Gentiles, believers, loving each other and caring for each other, it would have been astonishing to see. It was unexplainable. It was a miracle that took place. But see, the reality is Jesus Christ so changes our hearts and so humbles our hearts and so fills our hearts that that kind of animosity and hostility is forgiven and gone. That's what he did back then. So see the beauty of the cross displayed in what he's done between Jew and Gentile. That's one takeaway God wants for us. 
Look at what God has done between Jew and Gentile. Paul, loving Cornelius, right? Paul the Jew, loving Cornelius, or Peter the Jew, loving Cornelius the Gentile, loving each other. That's a miracle which happened because of Jesus. So see the power of Jesus Christ. See the beauty of Jesus Christ. See the reality of Jesus Christ. And as a result, worship Jesus Christ and trust Jesus Christ. That's the first takeaway. Here's the second. I think God wants to call us even more to be a church which displays this racial harmony. In other words, what God did between the Jews and Gentiles back then was because that's where the real racial animosity was. We don't have so much racial animosity for the most part. I mean, there there is still anti-Semitism and there there can still be division. But, But see, we're living in a place right here where we are here from all different nations, all different races, all different economic classes, very, very diverse people. And we're living in a country where for people like this to come together and to love each other is stunning for people to see here. This is an amazing thing that people from this diversity can come together and and can love each other. And see, we've got to own up to the fact that all of us in our hearts have some racism. Just because we're all proud. And we'll latch on to anything that can make me feel better than somebody else. If it's race, sure, I'll go for that or whatever it might be. So it's just in all of us. Let's just admit that and and own that. But here's what happens. When we see that we were dead in sin, that's who Steve Fuller was. And I was by nature a child of wrath. That's who I was. Dead in sin, facing God's wrath. And that I'm I'm saved through Jesus Christ alone, by God's mercy alone, who's done everything to save me by his mercy alone. Then I'll be humbled. My pride will be destroyed. My heart will be filled. And racism will be washed away from my heart. And it'll be washed away from your heart. So let's let's just own up to the fact that, yes, that's something that's in our hearts. But let's take that to the cross and, and say, Jesus, deal with this. Now, I know it's easier and more comfortable for all of us to connect with people of our own race, our own background, our own nation, right? We're all more comfortable doing that, right? Can we all just say, yes, this is true, we're all more comfortable doing that. And, and, and praise God that there's people here from our own country, right? That's a good thing, okay? So we're, we're thankful for that. But, but Jesus wants his church to display racial harmony to the nations. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And so I want to encourage us to go out of our way to building relationships and connections with people from different skin color, different country background, different economic situation. See, the church is not, is not like a stew. Okay, it's like, well, got the carrots over here, got the potatoes over here, got the meat over here, got the onions over here, okay? The church isn't a stew. The church is a melting pot, all right, where we are diverse. We are mixed together because we love each other. So I just want to encourage you. Let's, it's a little bit outside of our comfort zone, but let's, let's keep pressing into this. So let's be a church where I was trying to think of an example, like from, from the U.S. perspective, where, you know, in the south of the U.S. was where terrible I mean, it was all over the place, but especially in the South, slavery and the lynchings and the 
But see, imagine a, a white southerner from the South U.S. asking a black man to pray for him. Would you pray for me? I'm struggling with an area. And seeing that beautiful coming together of brothers in Christ, how Jesus has healed the pain and the hostility and the bitterness that could so easily be there, right? What an amazing thing, but let's pursue that. Or think about a, a doctor uh, walking up to a security guard here in our church and just, brother, how are you doing? It's so good to see you, embracing him, right? Security guard walking up to a, a corporate executive, embracing him, right? Just all these class barriers overcome here. Or, or what about a nanny and maybe a woman business owner? We're worshiping and they just take each other's hands and just let's worship the Lord together, right? Or whatever it might be. But do you see the beauty of that? And see, for people in this country, that would be shocking. It'd be shocking. And it'd be beautiful. Because only Jesus does that. Only Jesus does that. And Jesus does that. And Jesus is doing that here. But let's press in for more. Let's press in for more. God, give me more. Do it more. So that's the second one. Let's be a church which displays this racial harmony. And then third takeaway. If you're not yet trusting Jesus and you're here this morning, we are really glad you're here. And it's no accident that you're here because God wanted you to hear this talk about 100 AD, Jews and Gentiles, hostility, all these things. You're thinking, why am I here listening to this? Here's why. God wants you to see what he has done in Christ See the beautiful, supernatural, heart-changing work he's accomplished in Christ so that you will trust Christ. You'll trust him to forgive you. You'll trust him to change you. You'll trust him to satisfy you, and he will. That is, look at what happened in history. Jews and Gentiles who up until the time of Christ were completely hostile and separated from each other, and after, in the church, they were together. How did that happen? supernaturally by Jesus' power. So see Jesus' power displayed here. See his love displayed here. See his heart-changing work displayed here. And trust him that he can forgive you for your sins and that he can change your heart and that he can so satisfy you that you embrace people of all different nations, ethnicities, languages, cultures, classes, backgrounds, whatever. That's what he will do for you. So look at who Jesus is, what he's done, and trust him. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. Father, I ask that you'd bring your power upon us right now. Help us to see and feel more deeply the wonder, Jesus, of what you've done in uniting us by faith in Christ, uniting Jews who are trusting Christ, uniting us together. Thank you for what you did back then and what you're doing today. I pray, Lord, for us as a church that we'd be pressing in to love people, befriend people, serve people, have connections with people who are from different races and different backgrounds and cultures. And God, I pray for any of those here now who are not yet trusting Christ, that they would see the beauty, the reality, the love of Christ as displayed in what you did in this passage, and that they would trust Jesus now to forgive them, to change them, and to satisfy them. I pray that you would do that in 
Jesus' name.